Good morning, how are you? Hey, I just overheard a conversation over here during worship that uh, we ran out of parking spaces. Um, that's a good problem to have uh, as a church at one level, and it's also just a tough problem to have because um, the nearest parking lot besides these two is the one up there. Uh, and when I mean up there, I mean in Siberia up there. And, um, and it's a long walk. It's about a quarter of a mile, and you already got your cardio in before you came to church. So if you had to park up there, we apologize, and we'll try to adjust what we do in here um, so that there's space because um, we do want to make space for people. And so if you had a hard time finding a parking space, um, we're going to try to think of creative ways to make sure that um, there is a space for you because we do want you here at Spring Valley Community Church. My name is Joe. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to be together. I am so excited about about this new series we're starting today. If today's your first time, uh, good news, we're starting a new series together on the life of a guy named Joseph. And no, I didn't name it after myself. There's a real guy in the Bible named Joseph. And we're going to be looking at his life uh, for about the next eight weeks. And so we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, spending time in the Old Testament. Maybe the Old Testament scares you. Maybe it seems like God was really angry in the Old Testament and then Jesus came along and it made it seem like God was a lot nicer than we realized. I just want us to see God in the Old Testament working and I know that even today there'll be some just really helpful ways that this scripture is going to minister to us. So um, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, open up your Bible, if you have one, to Genesis chapter 37. If you have it on a device like an iPad or a phone, open it up to there. That's great. If you um, don't have a Bible with you, um, feel free to ask us for one and we'll give you one. We'd love to give you a Bible um, and that would just be our gift to you because we do want you to have a copy of the scriptures. You can also download the Bible to any smartphone that you have uh, with an app called YouVersion if uh, you're not into carrying around paper anymore, and, and we get that. Um, so go to Genesis 37. We're going to start in verse 2. We're going to start in verse 2. This is what it says. Getting launched into, into Joseph's life. So here's what's confusing. This is the first line about the story of Joseph. This is the account of Jacob. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I just told you we were going to spend the next eight weeks talking about Joseph. So let me just tell you this one thing. I have a little confession to make to us this morning. The story of Joseph isn't really about Joseph. Yes, he's the main player in the story we're going to study over the next eight weeks. But these final 14 chapters of Genesis are really about a guy named Jacob. Why? Who's Jacob? All right, so we got to back up a little bit, okay? So i got to give you a big picture of what's happening right now in the Bible. Okay, so Genesis 1, God created the earth and the heavens and everything. Six days of creation, one day he rested on the seventh day. Do we believe God did that? Yes, we do believe God created the world. And then he created man and he created woman and they, he gave them to one another. And he said, listen, you work the garden and everything's going to be great. And you can have this whole garden to work and to enjoy. And they had perfect relationship with God and with one another. And, 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 and it says that they were naked and they felt no shame. And it was just a beautiful place that God had created for man and woman. And then in Genesis 3, they do the only thing they're not supposed to do eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters the world, and we see immediately the ravaging effects of sin on the world. Adam and Eve's son kills his brother. Cain kills Abel. And then there's this wild story in Genesis chapter 6 about a guy named Noah. Um, not Russell Crowe. A guy named Noah. And, and it was incredible because 
God like wanted to do a giant redo with humanity because sin had just absolutely infected the world in ways that are even hard for us to imagine. Sin was wrecking the world. And then God shows up in Genesis 12 on the tenth step of a guy named Abraham. His name was Abram at the time, but his name is Abraham. That's who we know him as. Abraham was chosen by God at age 75 to be the father of God's chosen people, the Israelites. God made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that through Abraham's offspring or seed or son, all the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. God repeated this promise to Abraham's son Isaac and then to his grandson, Jacob. Beginning in chapter 12, Genesis is the story of these three men and how God was working through them to fulfill his promise to bless the world. The second half of the book of Genesis is about the life of Jacob. It would be several millennia, just so you know, you don't get to the end of Genesis and be like, oh, so that's how God fulfilled his promise. No, it's not a tidy conclusion at the end of Genesis. But we do know this. When we look at the life of Joseph, you have to understand this for the series to make sense. All of the tragedy in Joseph's life, all of the triumph we're going to see Joseph have, ultimately, Joseph's life is tied up in God's plan to rescue Jacob and his family from death. We shouldn't read Joseph's story like a tidy little book of morals. This isn't Aesop's Fables Bible edition, okay? Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we get to the end of a sermon and you're like, you should be more like Joseph. No, Joseph is not the hero of the story. Great guy, someone we might want to model our lives after, but he's not the hero. The story invites us not to be in awe of Joseph, but rather Joseph's God, as he is masterfully revealing his incredibly grand plan to rescue the world and bless the nations through one of Jacob's distant sons, Jesus Christ. Even the story of Joseph is ultimately about Jesus. So, we're going to walk through the story today. I, you need to know this. There's going to be a lot of scripture we're walking through today. This, this story is like 36 verses long. I cut out a little bit of it just for the sake of time. But if you want to get something out of today's message, you have to kind of dial in, zone in. You can't just do the glazed look in your eye. Like you kind of have to really focus on the story. It's an awesome story and it shouldn't be too hard to pay attention. But you need to know this. Because I really want you to pay attention, there's going to be a quiz at the end of the story, Okay. And it's a one-question quiz, and here is the question on the one-question quiz. Ready? You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Who is missing from the story? Who is missing from the story? All right, I've got to drink something because I'm about to get fired up. Here we go. It's coming. Here's the story. Joseph. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, made the baby nameless this year, very popular with the little girls, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, who's Israel? Okay, just so you know, Israel is Jacob. 
Jacob is Israel. So when you see the name Israel, it's really talking about Jacob, unless it's talking about the nation. But in Genesis, uh, for our purposes, you need to know when you see the name Israel, it's really talking about Jacob, and they're used interchangeably. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Good parenting. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So let's just kind of take a time out here. If you think your family is strange, you know what? We'll do something wild and vulnerable this morning. Raise your hand if you think your family's strange. Some people are waving their hands like, you should see my family. They are really strange. Okay, Jacob's family is not normal. Jacob's family makes your family look like, leave it to beaver, okay? Like it just looks like your family is awesome. Catch this. Jacob had 12 sons, and he had daughters too, but he had 12 sons with four different women, and they all lived together, and they all worked together, and they all made regular appearances on Jerry Springer. I mean, this is a wild family, And Joseph is 17 years old at the time of the story. He's son number 11 out of 12, and he is his father's favorite. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And and some of you are like, well, why was he his favorite son? Here's probably the reason. The text doesn't say it. It says that he was just his son in his old age. But here's why I think he was uh, Jacob's favorite son. Because Joseph's mom was a beautiful woman named Rachel. And Jacob, though he had four wives, Rachel was his true love. And Joseph was Rachel's mom. And we all know this part. You remember? What's that? What'd I say? He was. He was Rachel's mom. (laughs) Guys, it's 2015. We got to get with the times. We need to change the Bible to fit our cultural identity so that we don't feel like God is outdated, all right? Let's not be so stuffy. Maybe he was. Rachel was Joseph's mom. Thank you in the front row for paying attention. Thank you. Rachel is Joseph's mom. And we all know the story, right? Like, Maybe you don't know the story, but at least you've seen the Broadway play. There's this amazing coat that Jacob gives to Joseph. It's the coat of, maybe your translation says many colors, mine says richly ornamented. But here's the big idea. Joseph was the only one who got a coat. And Joseph is apparently an an aspiring journalist. The Hebrew word for bad report often implies a rumor or gossip. We'll see that Joseph's brothers are actually bad guys, but you need to know this about Joseph. He wasn't actually finding ways to extinguish the hatred his brothers had for him. Like, there's a way to help people not hate you. Joseph didn't know those ways. Case in point, verse 5. Joseph had a dream. Oh, great. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Well, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? 
Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. You see the theme. Joseph's brothers keep hating him more and more and more. Then he had another dream. Oh, good, Joseph, and I bet you're going to share it with your brothers. Listen, I had another dream. Guys, more good news for you. Gather round. Let me tell you about what's going to happen in my life and how your life's going to get worse and my life's going to get awesome. I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But catch this. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph lacks a serious sense of timing, doesn't he? Like he has no like emotional intelligence about what other people are going through. I don't know how Joseph could not perceive that his brothers hated him, but Joseph kept sharing these dreams. And what's interesting here is Jacob rebukes Joseph for this dream because Joseph is basically saying, not only will the brothers bow down to me, but mom, dad, you will bow down to me as well. Why is this so shocking? Because culturally in Joseph's day, a father or mother would never, ever bow down to one of their own children. And an older brother would never, ever bow down to a younger brother. This is why Jacob reprimands Joseph. This must have been perceived as incredibly disrespectful. However, you need to know this. Joseph's dreams are going to become a reality. We won't see that today, but we'll see it in the coming weeks. So the story kind of changes scenes after Joseph shares his dreams. We find out that Jacob has sent Joseph's brothers out into the field to tend the flocks and to go on a journey so that the sheep could graze. And then Joseph fulfills his role as family journalist, and Jacob says to Joseph, go check up on your brothers. So we pick up the story in verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cisterns here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Reuben was the firstborn, so we don't really know if Reuben was doing this out of a sense of duty and responsibility or compassion for Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, that symbol of favoritism that Joseph wore. I mean, Joseph's got a lot of gall, right? Like, hey, I'm going to go out and check on my brothers, and I think I will wear the biggest, flashiest reminder to all of them that I'm dad's favorite, and they're definitely second, third, fourth, fifth through twelfth. Like, that doesn't really seem like wisdom to me. And what did they do? They took him and threw him into the cistern. The word in the Hebrew there for threw him is the idea of leaving him for dead. Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. 
Judah seems like a real stand-up guy, doesn't he? I mean, Judah seems like he's awesome. Like someone you'd want to marry your sister. Hey, guys, let's not kill Joseph. Let's make some money off of him. Like, how does that sound? Like, hey, instead of killing him, let's sell him and send him as far away from here as possible. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured it, has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Like, this would be funny if it wasn't so sad, right? Like, oh, Dad, we really love Joseph too. We really thought he was a swell guy. You must be so hurting, Dad, after we just faked his death and sold him miles away from here. Jacob said, no. In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the temple card. Okay, class. Okay, ready? Who's missing from the story? So we just read 36 verses. Some of you are like, that was long. I know. But we're here to learn the Bible, so it's all right. Who's missing from the story? Whose name never gets mentioned? God's. God's name never gets mentioned. Where is he? What is he doing? Does he even care? Does he even notice? Is he hiding? How many of us are in a season of life right now where we're having a really hard time figuring out what in the world God is up to? I don't know you. I don't know all of you. And I don't know what you're going through. But if you walked into this room in pain today, you are probably wondering where God is and what God is up to in your life. Some of us might have even thought this before. If God really is in charge, he seems incompetent for the task. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God is ruling and reigning over the universe and your life seems like he is asleep? The story demonstrates that God is trustworthy even when we can't see him, even when we're in pain. I think the story brings us face to face with two areas of pain that most of us have experienced. Today I want to talk to you about trusting God when you're in pain. The first area of pain that I think all of us deal with that this story just speaks to so clearly is this, the pain in your family the pain in your family. I can trust God with the pain in my family. So here's what you need to know. I don't do a whole lot of counseling. I like people a lot, and I love to help people with their problems, but I don't do a whole lot of counseling. I know there's professionals who are much better at it than I am. But here's what I do know. Whenever somebody shares their pain with me, 
shares their struggles and their hurts. Almost every single time that pain can be traced back to their family of origin, to a mother, a father, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a sister, a brother. It's amazing to me how when I sit with people and we start to get to the bottom of what's really going on, issues started when we were very young. What's really clear in our story is this, and it's heartbreaking and it's real. Sin wreaks havoc on families. Jacob's family history was littered with sin. Let me just talk to you about some of the sins in Jacob's family. First of all, there was deception and lying. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, spent his life acting deceptively towards others. There's favoritism. Jacob, whose father Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob, spent his whole life trying to make someone else the emotional center, trying to make up for the love that Jacob never received from his father, Isaac. It's amazing when you look at Isaac and Jacob, how this sin of favoritism in the family went from one generation to the next. There was also a lot of jealousy in Jacob's family. I mean, if you want to read a, a really hilarious and sad story, a true tragedy, read Genesis 29 and 30, the greatest baby-making competition of all time, as Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel, jealous of one another, trying to have children so that Jacob will love them more. There was murder. Jacob had a daughter named Dinah. She was raped, and Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, take it upon themselves to avenge her rape, not only by killing the man who had violated her, but also killing every man in the village that this man was from. There was adultery. Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, slept with one of his father's wives, and incest for that matter. There was hatred. The brothers hate Joseph, and hatred spreads in the family like gangrene. And then, something we don't often identify as sin, but clearly a sin in Jacob's life, was his passivity. Repeatedly failing to deal with the carnage his sons have caused. Here's what I want to say to you this morning about your family and about your life. Because you tend to think of yourself as an individual, and because you've been Americanized to believe everything that I do is really only about me, and what other people do don't affect me, doesn't affect me, you will have a hard time accepting this. You are not the product only of your own choices. The sins committed by members of your family has marked you much deeper than you realize. And this is not a time to blame mom and dad. And this is not a time to make sure that nobody else or to not take responsibility for your life. Sinful patterns run in families. 
The things that we see in our parents that we don't like or that have even caused us pain are some of the very things we find ourselves repeating within our own lives and with our own spouses and children. How many of us vowed never to be like our parents and then painfully we are seeing ourselves treating our families in some of the same ways? Maybe not as extreme, but it happens. This is a great place of pain in my life. This is a great place of pain in my life. Some things that I vowed I never wanted to do with my kids have come out of me. Sin runs in families. Sin gets passed down. Behaviors get picked up. Or maybe you have committed yourself so strongly to not being like your parents that the other side of the pendulum has caused you to sin in different ways than they did, except it's just as damaging because you're living your life as a reaction to your parents. What kinds of sinful patterns run in families? Passive aggression, gossip, greed, self-pity, anger, overindulgence, self-righteousness, selfishness, arrogance, passivity, unrealistic expectations of others, cruelty, impatience, adultery, judging others, just to, name a th- just to name a few. I bet you if I asked you this morning, could you identify some of the sinful patterns in your family, meaning that you not only think about your parents and your family of origin, but you also think about your own life, I'm sure you could generate a list. Jacob's family is a clear illustration of two things when it comes to the pain and sin we experienced in our families. First is this. It shows us our complete inability to fix ourselves apart from the radical mercy and saving grace of Jesus Christ. None of us in this room truly know the depths of how sin has caused carnage in our lives. Both the sin you've committed against others and the sins committed against you have broken you, catch this, beyond what any self-help book, seminar, or therapist could repair. Only Jesus Christ can heal your broken heart from the pain you've experienced in your family. Secondly, what else does this show us? It shows us this incredible truth. In spite of our brokenness, God works through sin-stained families to accomplish his purposes. Like, Like, think about Jacob's family. None of us would have pegged Jacob's family to be God's chosen people. And that's the point. God's work in us and through us is not because of us. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we deserve it. Their lives are a reminder that regardless of where we come from or the depth of the pain we've experienced or even caused to others, he is greater. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that about your family? Do you believe that as you look at the, that the trash that some of you have grown up in and just the pain and the hurt and the vitriol and the anger and the hard things and the abuse and the neglect and the, and the loss and the chaos and the drug use, do you believe that as you look at your sin-stained past, things that you have done and things that have been done to you and by those around you, Do you believe he's greater? Do you believe that he is able to work through all of that for his glory and your good? Your sin, your past, your pain does not disqualify you from being mightily used by God to advance his kingdom. He only works through the broken. 
And what we're going to see over the next weeks is how God works through this family to save an entire nation. And he chose to do it through people like this. People that if they were in our small group, we'd probably ask to leave because they'd be so divisive, annoying, and sinful. Some of you believe the lie that you've been disqualified because of where you grew up. Some of you believe the lie because you weren't a perfect parent or because you didn't do everything you were supposed to do that somehow God has finished in your family. And if you get nothing out of today except this thought, I will be grateful to Jesus. God is not finished in your family. And he is not finished in your marriage. And he is not finished in your life. And as you surrender to him and you yield to his work, and you let him heal, and you let him restore, and you let him bring you to a place of forgiveness, he can do more than you can even ask or imagine him doing. People who are excited about that can say, I've seen him do it in my own family. I'm excited about it because I've seen him do it in my own family. It's one of the foundational things of my faith. Looking back and hearing about who my family was, and seeing my grandfather and my grandmother, and seeing how in the midst of adultery and affairs and anger and hatred and vitriol, that Jesus Christ in his grace and in his mercy raised up a righteous generation for his good. I'm so grateful for that. But it's not just my family. It's yours as well. Don't give up hope for the people around you. Don't give up praying for them and don't believe the lie that God can't do it. Here's the second thing. I can trust God with the pain of my circumstances. We only got through the first chapter of the story today. It's like only watching the first 15 minutes of a movie. It's hard to draw conclusions about a movie in the first 15 minutes. In some ways, our lives are exactly the same. We only know what's happened up to this very moment. None of us know what the future holds. And when we are in the point of the story that Joseph is in, where is Joseph at this point of the story? Naked, beaten, and sold into slavery. It's hard for us to understand where God is and what God is doing. Joseph, think about what's going to happen to Joseph. He's going to spend the next 13 years from 17 to 30 as a slave, a prisoner, and far from all he knows. Joseph, just so you know, he would never return home after he was sold into slavery. He would die in Egypt. It's a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder of this reality. Being used mightily by God does not always mean life gets easier. In fact, most times it gets harder. However, we have the advantage of knowing where the story ends. We have the benefit of seeing God orchestrate the details of Joseph's life so that he could save Jacob and his family from death. And this is what's supposed to inspire us about this story. This is what's supposed to build our faith. Romans 15, 4 says this, For everything that was written in the past, the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So why does Paul say in Romans 15 we have stories like Joseph's life? First, we have the story to teach us so that we can see God's amazing plan unfold in the most unexpected ways to rescue humanity from the destruction we have brought upon ourselves. But secondly, 
We have the story of Joseph so that you and I might endure the seasons of pain and discouragement that we're in and be encouraged in our faith as we live lives filled with hope. Joseph's story should inspire hope in your life that God is working, that he is not taking a nap, that when you can't feel his hand, it doesn't mean his hand isn't moving. We look at the pain we're in and we juxtapose it against the character of God revealed in the story of Joseph. What we'll see in Joseph's story is that he is working to bring Joseph to a place where Jacob and his family can be saved. There we discover a God who wisely uses the pain we experience and repurposes it for his glory and our good. This is not just some special preacher talk. God is doing this all the time. He is taking our pain and our hurts and the things that we don't understand and he's repurposing them for his glory, our good, and the good of others. Take a look at this story, real life example. Brian and Robin Adams, we actually um, met at the village, got married a couple of years later, and, and um, then we decided that we wanted to have a family and start a family and, and just thought that that would just come very natural and very easy. But for us, it was, it was a big challenge. Uh, for, for us, we um, went through uh, a couple of miscarriages. We had... Um, Robin had a really uh, bad etopic pregnancy. Going through all of that, we finally got pregnant with uh, twins, and um, we were just overjoyed. We were at a friend's house, and um, I started having some pretty intense pain in my back, and she said, um, maybe you should call your nurse and just check and see um, what that is. And so um, we went to the ER on New Year's Day, and. Um, they were pretty busy and uh, called up to labor and delivery and um, let us go ahead and come up even though we were 19 weeks and that's typically not um, protocol for them to let somebody come up there that early in pregnancy. They typically would just uh, say you're having a miscarriage. So uh, we went up and um, they found out that I was in labor and uh, they gave us, gave me some medication to help stop it and um, tried to prevent uh, anything else progressing. The doctor explained all the scary odds for us uh, that, that she only, uh, we had less than a 5% chance and for us that was more than enough. We, we knew that God could do, uh, God, God could do miracles with that. And, um, but the, the doctor went on to explain to us that a lot of times it's better for uh, the for you to terminate the pregnancy or abort the pregnancy and let the woman's body um, heal and, and, and try again later. But for us, it was uh, something that, that we held on hope and, and said that we wanted to see where, where uh, the Lord would take it. And we believe God has a purpose for, for every life. And, and uh, for us, it, it was just the only option. Uh, so the specialist came in and um, did a sonogram and um, now Titus was laying um, across uh, the cervix and everything was relaxed and he said, well this doesn't look like you're going to deliver at all. Everything is calmed down and he's um, essentially blocking the exit. So we went in the hospital and for, for um, uh, 
over a month, we got to hear our, our son's heartbeats. Every other day, we got to go see them on a sonogram, which um, uh, not every family gets to to see their their kids develop on an every other day basis. They organized a prayer group at the hospital um, while I was on bed rest, and I couldn't go down there because I couldn't leave my room, but um, Brian sent me video, and um, it was a full, a waiting room full of, of people. There was just worship and singing and praying, um, just pleading with the Lord for, um, the life of, of our two boys. And then at 23 weeks and two days, um, we couldn't stop labor any longer and we ended up, um, ended up having an emergency C-section and delivered Titus first. And he was, um, a pound, one pound, six ounces. He, um, lived for 45 minutes and just couldn't, he just didn't have the lungs to respond to a ventilator or to treatment. Asher was born second and he was um, a pound two ounces. Asher was um, in the hospital for um, 147 days. He had heart surgery at, at uh, five weeks old. Um, he had um, a, a number of different issues with his esophagus. At 23 weeks, um, his chances were probably about 3% just to live. It's just by the grace of God that not only uh, is he here with us, but he is completely healthy and normal and has no real developmental issues that, that we know about. And, um, and, and it's just an answer to all of those prayers that we, we witnessed during that time. From then on, we always said that Titus uh, helped um, give Asher a chance. In everything that was taken from us, he wanted to give us so much more. He gave us just um, so many experiences with people that we wouldn't have had, conversations with nurses, um, with other preemie parents. We got to really feel the presence of God. Those things are far better than, than healthy twin boys. Those things are um, eternal. Why do we need to see things like that? Because there are real people who have walked through real things and have suffered incredible loss and can still say, I trust God's hand. I trust his working. I trust that he's using my pain for the good of those around me. Joseph didn't know that, lying in a cistern. It would take him years to see the wisdom of God. It would take years for him to see what God was doing. There were frustrating moments, I'm sure, in Joseph's life. There were moments when he didn't understand. There were moments when he cried out. And there were moments when I'm sure he thought, if God is in charge, 
he sure seems incompetent for the task. See, it's only when we are on the other side of pain that we see the sovereign good hand of God. And friends, for some of us, the other side of pain might be an eternity with Jesus Christ. You don't have to know the purpose of your pain or understand it for God to have one. The question we're confronted with this morning is a simple one. Will you trust him with your pain? Will you let him use your pain to be a ministry to those who are hurting? Will you stare your pain in the face and say, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you're still good. This is the Christian life. There are some versions of Christianity that promise you bigger houses, bigger cars, and bigger bank accounts. The God of the Bible promises you so much more. Life to the full. Life full of faith. Suffering so that we can be a blessing to others. Hard days so that we know what it's like. Why does God allow you pain? I don't know. But I know that He's sovereign. And I know that he's good. And I know he hasn't turned his back on you. And I know that you are called, and I am called, and we are called to stare our hard days in the face and say, our God is greater. And I don't see and I don't understand, but I know the sun will rise. And I know he will work all things together for my good. Maybe some of you aren't ready to say that this morning. I would just invite you to let your walls come down before the Lord. I would invite you to release your anger to the Lord. I would invite you to release your need to be in control and try and figure everything out why what is happening is happening. And I invite you to trust our King. And I invite you to trust our God. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. But we do worship the God of Joseph. We do worship the one who uses strange and mysterious ways to show us his plan. Your choice this morning is to trust him. In just a moment, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come and line the front of this place. And I am not going to ask you to stay in your seat and think about it. I'm going to ask you to come to this altar this morning. I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat and not worry what anyone else is thinking. You know what people in this room are thinking when they see you get up? Oh, that person needs God as much as I do. 
I invite you to come and I invite you to say, I trust you, Lord. And the people across this front, we just want to pray for you and we want to agree with you. And we want to ask God to change things. It's not a wrong prayer. But the highest prayer is, I trust you. I trust you. And that's a prayer some of us need to pray this morning. Before I do that, I want to talk to those in this room who have not trusted Jesus Christ with their lives. You are running from God. And Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for your sin. And the greatest pain you can know of in life is pain apart from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want you to stay far from him. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you a new heart and a new life. This morning, I want to ask you real directly, do you want to invite Jesus Christ into your life? Do you want to become a Christian? Do you want to become a follower of Jesus? Will you follow him? Even if it means pain and hard days. The Christian life is so filled with joy, so filled with hope, and there are days when it's sorrowful. But the greatest pain you are experiencing in your life is not your circumstances. It's being far from God. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand and let me know? I want to give my life to Jesus Christ this morning. Is there anyone here today who would say, my life is for Jesus? See that hand in the back. Anybody else? Let's pray together. Lord, we have to deal with reality. Lord, we have to deal with what's true in our lives. Lord, what's true in some of our lives this morning, many of our lives, is there are places of pain and confusion and discouragement and not understanding. And Lord, that's so real and you know it. And Lord, you are inviting us this morning to the God of Joseph, to yourself, to trust you, to thrust our lives on your sovereignty, that you are working when we can't see and when we can't understand. God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that have a deep and abiding trust in you. And Lord, sometimes we don't even have the strength to say the words because we're so defeated. So I pray in your kindness and in your tenderness this morning, Holy Spirit, would you lift the heads of those who are hurting? And would you speak a word of life and hope into their heart today that you are trustworthy? And Lord, for the one who's saying they want to follow Jesus, I pray for them. Pray that they would simply say to you, I trust you, forgive me, I want to follow. Lord, you're calling us home today, home to your heart, where we trust our dad to see where he's taking us, even when we can't. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come. If you need prayer today, come.